the Lord. Uh, it's funny, I've been, uh, I'm always trying to prepare my brothers and sisters in Christ spiritually uh, for the day, as well as for uh, the world uh, system that we have to confront, and also f- for the times uh, that may happen. You know, you know, the last days happened a long time ago. They began, I should say, a long time ago. They didn't happen in the sense that they're past tense. We're not preterists. We're futurists. The book of Revelation is almost entirely uh, future, but uh, the scriptures speak of how the last days, that last age, uh, specifically before the end of the age, uh, came uh, with Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 talks about that, 1 and 2. Uh, Paul talked about, you know, that as well. But the scriptures also talk, seem to talk about the last hour and the last of the last days, amen? And things are getting crazy, and a lot of people have been like, man, is the church prepared for what's going to happen possibly as things get darker and uh, those who have Christian voices and those who are even more conservative that aren't even Christians are being shut out of the media and there's a war against our First Amendment rights, you know, and so forth uh, with a lot of socialists, the liberals that are, uh, you know, far left and so forth. And you see high tech, big tech, I should say, you know, shutting down a president <laughs> where he couldn't even tweet, you know. Uh, and as one brother said, if they could do it to the president, it could do it to anyone, you know. And they've proven that they have been. Uh, I think it was Newt Gingrich. Uh, he was just banned for like a week from Twitter, you know. I think he just got back on. And I'm not praising the different, they, I'm just mentioning the people that, you know, it's just amazing. And, uh, and the government can say, oh, you know what, well, we didn't do it, they did it, you know. Even though you protect them from liabilities if there's an accuser, they have special rights, do you know that? You know, big tech has special rights. You know, you can't take them to court because of something that's said to somebody else on their platform. That's, you know, and they get, they're afforded these special rights, you know. And I'm, it's like, Joe, you're crazy. You're, you're talking about this, and they're going to cut you off. Hey, we've already been. I'm, for the last several, several months, we haven't been able to have an advertisement on our Facebook. Even though we have over 50,000 members of our Facebook and over 100,000 on our YouTube, on our Facebook, we can't even advertise. We can't even advertise a social, we don't even know why. It's not like we were flagged a bunch of times and, you know, blew it, and they won't respond to us. Isn't that interesting? So... And sometimes, even though there may be glitches, but it seems like those glitches always help happen to conservatives or conservative Christians. Isn't that weird? Uh, but the Word of God will not be held bound. And we've read the end of the book. We know who wins in the end. Amen? amen. And Jesus said, I'll build my church, Jesus said, and uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? amen? And he said in Ephesians 3, Paul did that the church would endure throughout all generations. And God's Word is not bound, the Scriptures say. It's going to get out. Amen? And even during the tribulation period where many believers will be killed, there will be two witnesses that will not be able to be killed for 42 months. And even after they're killed, I mean, you also have three angels that fly in the midheavens, one proclaiming Babylon's fallen, one proclaiming the everlasting gospel, one warning people not to take the mark of the beast. Amen. And you have believers even that are brought before kings that will be filled with the Holy Spirit that are proclaimed the gospel. Amen. And persecution is going to be pretty ugly. But the church lacks a theology of suffering. The modern church thinks that believers are not supposed to really suffer much at all, if at all. 
even though the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the kingdom of God after having been flogged when you read through Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. And I was asked by a sister, I think it was Kelly Locke, last uh, Wednesday, she's like, you know, can you have some messages on like, uh, you know, preparation and how to survive the coming, you know, tribulation and so forth. And, uh, and when she said that, I wasn't sure when she left, we had that talk, if she meant physical preparation or spiritual preparation. Because I feel like I'm always, every message has spiritual preparation for your life now that applies to the future, for your life in the future, if those things that would happen, for that apply now, usually, you know. And uh, at the same time, uh, if she meant spiritual prep, if she meant physical preparation, that's not my stick, you know. <laughs> if you want a, uh, somebody who's, you know, there's all kinds of people as far as, you know, the kind of food to store and where to store and, and where to go and where to hide and all that, that's just not me. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's bad, you know. I just don't know that that's a calling of everybody. And I don't want to get pe that in people's minds in case, because you know what? I'm more for people standing up and proclaiming the gospel during that time. Jesus said when they persecute you in one city, go to the next. Right? And there's believers in Babylon till the very end of the age, just before he returns. Come out of her, my people, that you partake of her sins and her plagues. So then she needs to get out, but that's just before the second coming of Christ. And I look at victory in the book of Revelation. When I see it, it talks about those who are imprisoned for the gospel, you know, and those who are beheaded for the gospel. I also see people protected in the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12. So I always say it's not one size fits all. I see in Isaiah chapter 26, God says to others to go into their rooms, shut their doors, their houses, until my indignation passes over. And that's in the context of the Great Tribulation period. I see Jesus said, say to the believers in Jerusalem, when you see the abomination, desolation, stand in the holy place to flee the mountains. I see him say not to premeditate what you're going to speak when they bring you before kings and the Holy Spirit will speak through you. I see a variety of answers. In fact, when I did a debate on the time of the rapture with a pre-trib brother, Dr. Stoffer in Colorado, uh, at the end of this long debate, I think that was like a four or five hour debate. It's online. You can check it out. By the grace of God, we've won many over that have seen that debate to the post-trib position. But at the end of that debate, there was Q&A time, which is on there. And they asked, how do you prepare uh, spiritually? You know? Ah, you know what? I'm conflating that talk. I, I might have had that question too, but I'm conflating that talk with one in uh, Canada where we were asked about spiritual preparation. And it's there that I mentioned several different, there's several different possibilities that God might lead you into. So I want to encourage you guys. Uh, but what I am all about is spiritual preparation. Because if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all what? These things will be added unto you. Amen. He'll take care of you. If it's his will that you live through, till the end of the tribulation and, and are there at his second coming... Awesome. If it's not his will and you go first, you die, well, that's even more awesome. You know why? Because the dead in Christ will rise first and you'll be at the second coming before those that are waiting. Either way, it'll be glorious. Amen? Amen. 
So what I'm into and what I believe is as a pastor in pastoral ministry is preparation to encourage you to live a godly life and please God and to, to be devoted to Jesus, to worship Him, to love Him, to draw near to God through prayer, through the reading of His Word, through responding through your trials to Him in a way that magnifies His glory, in a way that, that causes His heart to rejoice. In fact, the author of Hebrews, when he was dealing with persecuted believers, was emphasize, emphasized that it was important for them to be in fellowship and them to draw near to God. And wherever you're at, whatever you go through, the key to spiritual victory is drawing near the Lord with a humble heart and putting your trust in Him and His salvation. But there are many specific things that Jesus said. So when Kelly had mentioned it would be great to do some messages or for some messages on preparing the church for what's coming spiritually in the tribulation period. Uh, since we're back, or we're supposed to be back in Revelation, you know, uh, I've been working on a series off and on for some time, so I thought it was kind of funny, and I mentioned that to her, uh, what it means to be an overcomer, what it means to be victorious, and to be victorious in spiritual warfare in the end of days. So it's a little series along with some of the other series, I shouldn't say little, that I'll do from a message from time to time on, you know, spiritual survival in the end of days. We want to know because in the midst of Jesus saying what will happen, right, he talks a lot about what to do, the application of what we ought to do to live holy lives in light of the things that are going to happen. So in this series, it will not be so much this and this and this are going to happen. We'll talk about that a little bit, but it'll be more the verses that have to do with the times and the paradigm of a certain passage that relates to other passages regarding how we're to live godly lives in regard to the times that we live in. And that way, you can be the, the most prepared people for the end of days are those who know what the Bible says to do spiritually. Sons of Issachar knew what to do, it says, because they understood the times. The Pharisees rejected Jesus because he said you could read the weather and you know it's going to rain the next day when the sky's red, but hey, ha, they missed their visitation. He said their house would be left to them desolate because they didn't, weren't able to read the times even though they could read the weather. And as believers, too many believers in the church today, they just want to, a short little message with a few, reason, a few things to just apply to their lives and go home and and then there's no, trans there's no radical transformation often that happens in their lives. You know, to go to a secret sense of the church, hear a few principles, yeah, you know, don't kick the dog, whatever, you know. But is that truly preparing you to live a godly life? I've found through just preaching the word of God seriously that we've had very strong disciples in this fellowship. I was counseling someone recently, and he said he had heard, and I'd heard the statistic many times through the years, that in the church there's a 50% divorce rate. I said, yes, just like the world. Even worse in some places. I said, that's true. I said, not a blessed hope, you know. Not with the Christians that are in our fellowship. Divorce would be a more rare thing here, you know. And that's, what I, and that's the fruit of people seeking Jesus, people being serious about the Lord. Doesn't mean that divorce is the unpardonable sin, but if you're cheating on your spouse and you divorce them, then you need to repent and get right because 
you know, adulterers will not inherit God's kingdom. But we preach the warnings, we preach the promises, we preach the whole, everything off the page, and, and that should result in godly living. So when it comes to the scripture and being spiritually prepared, uh, I'm going to show you something I think is very, very interesting. When I get into a little bit, a couple of the more controversial type passages, I'm going to show you why and how important it is to understand the scriptures that don't talk about the end times, like we've been studying Philippians and other passages, and they relate to the end times so often. And then when you study the end times and how to live in them, they relate to the here and now. Because the end times just speaks of an intensification of trials. Amen? And the need to show loyalty to your Lord. And that's what we ought to be doing all the time, whether we're in a birth pain or in the between a birth pain, or we're up, we're down, we need to be loyal to Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it describes what it means to be an overcomer. You don't have to turn there because I'm not going to do a message yet on what it means to be an overcomer, although I've been working on that message off and on for years. But it says, and they overcame him, that is the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. Three things are mentioned there that defines an overcomer. First and foremost, by far and away, is the ground of our victory. They overcame him, that is the devil, by the blood of the Lamb. Our victory. You could talk about your testimony and how important that is and being faithful to the end and so forth, but if your faith is not in Christ and his finished work in dying for your sins on the cross, amen, amen. and his resurrection, amen. the gospel, and his conquering of death, well, then you don't even really have a testimony. You don't even know Jesus. You have to make sure your faith is in Christ. Know that you're trusting the one who died for you and rose again. The one who promised, whoever comes to me, I won't cast them away. He's not going to cast you away if you come to him. He didn't say you can't leave him, but he says he won't cast you away. Amen? Amen. That's a beautiful promise. So you have to make sure you're trusting Jesus, the gospel. Next, and I think it's important, is the word of our testimony. See, first of all, the blood of Christ is important because without Christ, we're doomed. He saves us. His blood saves us from the wrath to come that we deserve. It saves us from sin, and it's the penalty. It saves us from death and eternal separation from God. Amen? It saves us and, and rescues us from the clutches and the power of the enemy. And there's debates over and over again about this is, the, this is what salvation is about in the Bible. And no, this is what salvation is about. They'll write entire books and they'll battle each other. And they miss the mosaic, the beautiful complementary scriptures that the, that the beauty of salvation is multifaceted. I've got a number of books where they argue this is what salvation is really about. It's strictly forensic. It's legal, you know. God, we're declared not guilty or we're no, no, no condemnation because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's what salvation is about. And others say, no, it's about how we have, as, as Christus victor, uh, we have victory over Satan because of Christ's blood. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. Uh, those who, you know, were bound by the fear of death or enslaved by the fear of death have been set free from the devil through what Christ did on the cross. Back and forth. And it's like, wait a minute, guys. It's like a diamond. Salvation is so beautiful. There's so many aspects. Amen? Yeah, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. Amen? Amen? He also set us free, you know. And he also set us free from the enemy's hands. Amen? Amen. 
Those are all true. Salvation is so rich, so beautiful. So a lot of the arguing needs to be not, it's like, no, just, yeah, that is. Now there's some emphasis. And there's others who de-emphasize or don't even share certain aspects of salvation. And to me, we don't get the richness of the beauty of the Lord, which inspires us to love Him more and grow more. So we need to speak of all these things. So the blood of the Lamb is so, it gives us victory over, because they overcame who? Satan. Because of the blood of the Lamb. There's victory over Satan right there, amen? amen? But we're also saved from the wrath to come that we deserve from God, the Father, because of His blood on the cross, amen? But we have victory through Christ's blood, amen? So, man, we should be singing and worshiping and thanking Jesus for shed blood. For, 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 we will forever. Because in heaven, in Revelation chapter 5, when the resurrected Christ stands up, what do you see? He saw one, John says, that stood as a lamb. And he's able to take the scroll because of his sacrifice. And he's able to take, take the scroll out of the hand of the Father. But they overcame him not only by the blood of the lamb, but by the word of their testimony. What's your testimony? That's your faith in Jesus. Amen? The testimony that you're trusting Jesus, what he's done for you. Your testimony is, I'm trusting his blood. Amen? John said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, that he's on the Isle of Patmos. He was exiled there, we read, because of the word of God and his testimony for Jesus. He's being persecuted. It's a testimony of Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. You can't be saved unless you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is your Lord. Amen? And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the third part is very important too. By the way, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father and his angels. But if you don't confess me, I won't confess you. And then they love not their lives even to the point of death. What is that? That means that you're faithful to the end. Either of your life or until the Lord comes. But you continue in the faith. And if there's been a lapse of faith, there needs to be repentance. You need to be restored. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even unto death. These are the types of scriptures that are important, not only for the tribulation period, for right now. They apply right now. You trust the blood of the Lamb. You have a word of your testimony right now. There are some that believe Ephesians chapter 6, when it says, put out the whole armor of God that you may stand against the wiles of the devil, right? And having done all the stand, stand, so you can stand in the evil day. They think they apply the evil day to the tribulation period. I have no problem with that. Because you definitely want to have the armor of God, right? If you're going through the tribulation period. What I would have a problem with is if you exclusively apply that verse only to the tribulation period, it's specifically because Paul is, especially because Paul is not even talking about the tribulation period in that context. It has application, but the evil day is any day that, you, that happens to come into your life whereby the powers of darkness are unleashed against you. Or just somebody's in the flesh. And you need to respond in a godly way. So it's imperative that we are always preparing ourselves spiritually. And if you're preparing yourself spiritually and growing closer to Christ, no matter what happens in the future, whether the end times the end of the end times happen in our lifetimes or not, you'll be, you'll be prepared. And so we're talking about spiritual survival in the end of days. And one of the most important verses on this, where Jesus speaks poignantly, and I know it's very, very important to Jesus because he repeats this teaching. Repeats pretty much 
the same exact words more than once to his apostles. And that is, go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Now, in verse 13, and we'll look at the broader context in a little bit, Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Amen? Amen. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, I want to talk to you about something that I find quite fascinating. And this is why most of the church is not prepared. One of the reasons. Not even prepared to face daily trials. Because when Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved, saved is in the future tense. He's talking about salvation being future. Okay? Now, I happen to believe very strongly that salvation is also something that's happened to Christians in the past. Amen? And I happen to believe the Scriptures teach it's also something that's happening to us in the present. But clearly, Jesus also said it's something that is something that's in the future as well. And there's much biblical imagery and biblical metaphors and terminology that describes our salvation that has a present and a past and a future aspect. But let's be honest now. Most, of, most Christians, most of those in the evangelical, Christ-professing church, what aspect of salvation do they usually speak of or do they usually think in terms of? Come on now. Past, present, or future. When somebody is talking about salvation, and, you know, not if they're from this fellowship. That's not fair, okay? Okay? But if they're talking about their testimony, they're talking about salvation, they're talking about it in what tense usually? I got saved, right? When did you get saved? Past tense, right? You know, uh, where were you when you got saved? You know, who led you to Christ when you got saved? Beautiful talks, beautiful It's beautiful, it is indeed. But I'm venturing to say to you right now that most of the church, I would say over 90% of the church, has no understanding that the term saved is used far more in the future tense in the New Testament than in the past tense. And 90% plus of Christians, my experience has been, don't even understand that. Don't just think salvation is something that has happened in the past. I'd say 99% or more, more than 99% easy of Christians have no idea that the term salvation, the term saved, is used more in the, in the future tense than it is used in the past tense. And wrong doctrine or wrong emphasis, because I'm not saying, talking about salvation in the past tense, we talk about that all the time. All of us, we give our testimony and how we got saved, you know, how beautiful it was and so forth. But if you emphasize just the past tense and you don't have any emphasis at all on the future tense, something is out of biblical balance. And wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. Because if you don't believe that there's a future aspect to salvation, 
and that you, have to, you don't believe you have to endure to the end to experience that future aspect of salvation, that is going to lead to apathy, moral carelessness, sin. It's also going to, it's going to affect spiritual warfare. It's going to affect witnessing. You know how many people witness and they just want to get person to make a decision for Jesus? Okay, you're saved. I have a videotape of a very popular teacher who goes to a door and knocks. Very popular teacher. And I'm going to, when I'm in Texas coming up pretty quick, I'm going to, I'll be here Sunday, but eventually I'm going to be up in Texas and I'm going to be playing part of this clip where this gentleman knocks and he's showing how to witness and he tells the person to just make a decision for Jesus. He says, and after you, he doesn't believe in repentance, just accept Jesus in your heart. Just pray this prayer with me. The guy's like listening and makes it sound really good because he tells the guy, even if you accept Jesus right now and you, and you quit going to church, you know, and you murder someone, you don't follow Christ anymore. He goes, you know, you'll still be saved. You want to do this? No kidding. He said also you can commit a hundred murders and you'll still be saved. And this is a teacher that's influenced a lot of people because he only thinks of salvation in the sense of the past tense. He doesn't believe you have to endure in the end, to the end in your faith to be saved. And no wonder since so many people believe and emphasize the past tense of salvation, they live the way they live, they witness the way they witness, and they encompass, you know, <laughs> land and sea, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, to make one disciple and then they make him twice the child of hell. Because maybe that guy was struggling not to be evil, you know, and not to do evil. And it seemed like the guy already believed in Jesus. Kind of was an interesting little deal going on there. But I don't know. And now he feels like he has a license to do whatever he wants. But uh, listen to this. I went to a website that sought to explain away Jesus' warning here. If you want to be spiritually, uh, <laughs> the most important thing that you need to keep in mind regarding spiritual survival and being prepared for just not just the end of days, just your walk with Jesus right now. Because Paul said, not speaking specifically of the tribulation period, in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul preached the message what he preached in the churches. You know what he's going around telling the churches? That through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulation. The enemy's going to try to squelch your faith. He's going to try to bring persecution He's going to try to bring thorns and thistles to squeeze it out. He's going to try to steal the seed before you even believe. But once you believe, then he brings persecution. Then he brings the cares and the fears of this world. He brings all sorts of things. So it's imperative that we understand. So I was on, uh, you know what? It's kind of funny. I'm not even sure exactly how I got here. But uh, listen to that, what this man and woman in this website say about what Jesus says here. And how it doesn't really mean what I'm saying it means and what so many Christians for centuries understood it to mean, most Christians. Listen to what, he, what it says. When Jesus says he who endures the end will be saved, he does not mean that you must be good until, the, until you die to be saved from hell. Okay, well, we're talking about what we must do is continue in the faith, amen? But if you have faith, there'll be evidence, good fruit, amen? But he's saying, but that doesn't really have to happen in your life. 
He is talking about a specific group of people in the future who will, heed, who will need to endure to the end of the tribulation in order to be saved from physical death. So I say this, Jesus is really talking about just, you know, in, if you endure to the end, you'll be physically alive at the end. Well, that's kind of silly. Did Jesus really have to tell him that? If you endure the tribulation period and physically, you'll be saved physically? No, I think that's obvious, right? <laughs> you, yeah, if you, it's like telling my kid, if you get off the roller coaster at the end, you'll still be alive. Okay? So first of all, that doesn't make sense, but we have a more biblical answer than that. I know, I'm putting it up there and it keeps falling. I'm not sure why. Here we go. I stuck it in deeper. Maybe that'll work. Thanks. Check this out. He goes on to say, he compounds his error by saying this. It's a man and a woman wrote, wrote his article, so maybe she wrote most of it. I don't know where he did. Understanding Matthew 24, 13, 14, 24, 13 is good news for several reasons. I look at it, I say it's good news because praise the Lord, Jesus cared enough to warn him about this, amen? And praise the Lord, uh, there's, a, there's the, what we call final salvation, our f- the future aspect of our salvation. Praise the Lord that he's going to come back. I say that was a lot of good news. Praise the Lord, he, he gave us warnings and promises on how to d- endure this time. But that's not what he means. Understanding 24.13 is good news for several reasons. It's good news to know that we don't need to endure to the end of the tribulation because we aren't in the tribulation. It's also good news to know that we won't even be in the tribulation. So if you were in it, a lot of people teach you could fall away. You'll still be spiritually saved. What Jesus is talking about there is just being physically saved at the end. And by the way, because he's pre-trib, I, I suppose, uh, we're not going to be there anyway. By the way, in other words, Matthew 24 is not really for the church. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but I will say this. Every commentator that's ever commented on Matthew 24 from a Christian perspective, up until John Darby in the 1800s, watch our video called Left Behind or Led Astray, every one of them understood it to be to the church. It wasn't until 1800 years after Jesus that we're told it's not really for us. It's for non-believing Jews. Now that's kind of strange because at the beginning of Matthew 24, where they say the rapture takes place, the very next verse, right after they say the rapture takes place, and there's no verse that says there'll be a rapture right at the beginning. Right after that, it says, you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Who? The Jews aren't going to be hated by all nations because of Jesus' name at the beginning of tribulation because they don't even follow Jesus. Makes no sense. However, I want to say, say this to you. This verse does apply to you. And that's why I need to emphasize these things because in the church, you don't hear these things. And I know our audience is way beyond what's here in the fellowship. We have a live stream audience and so forth. And you're driving down the road, you're not usually hearing these things because guess what? It doesn't really apply to us. And if you're pre-trib, well, guess what? That doesn't apply to us because that part of the Bible is to the Jews. Even though Jesus said to those same apostles, after his resurrection, a few chapters later, going to all the world to preach the gospel, all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19, 20. Teaching them to observe everything that I've taught or commanded you, which is, includes Matthew 24 and 25. You know what Matthew 24 and 25 are about? They're all about being ready for him at his return. That's not for them, right? He talks about he's coming like a thief. They better be ready in Matthew 24. Amen? 
talks about the ten bridesmaids, the virgins who fell asleep. He talks about, and Paul talks about that imagery. So does Peter, how he's coming like a thief in the night. They pick up on Jesus' teaching. They warn the church. But you know how we know for sure Jesus' words, he that endures the end will be saved, applies to believers in the here and now, right now even, is because Jesus uttered the same warning, warning slash promise in Matthew chapter 10 when he wasn't even talking about the tribulation period. He was just sending them out on a mission trip, right? So go to Matthew chapter 10. Easy to get to. Hang a left. It's right there. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 5. These uh, 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. That's the 12 apostles. Matthew 10, 5. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes on to talk about healing and so forth. And he sends them out. But he gives them instructions. He's talking about the very, talking about that time right then even. Not talking about the tribulation period. But look at the warnings he gives them. Look at verse 22. Well, look at 21. Things are going to get really ugly. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. And children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. That says they're going witnessing. But it is the one who what? Who has endured to the end who will be what? Saved. Very clear. This applies to us. Not just the tribulation period. That was my point. That's why whether we're talking about the warnings regarding enduring the great tribulation period or talking about warnings now, there's such a crossover. They apply. We need to persevere in our faith right now and not throw in the towel. And it's those who do to the end, they shall be what? doesn't say they were saved or they've proven that they were saved as someone had twisted that way, as though it's just descriptive of what it means to be a believer. No, it says he who endures the end shall be saved, future tense. Now, in fact, uh, he makes it very clear they have to persevere. Look at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy what? Both soul and body in hell. Wow. Look at verse 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. He also says elsewhere in the angels. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Wow. Think of what Jesus is saying. You're going to be radically persecuted to the point of death, but he that endures the end, the same will be saved. That means no sense at all if they are talking about physical life, right? Because he's talking about even being killed, right? He's not talking about being physically saved if you endure to the end, right? Because I'm talking about the end of a duration of time here, unless you think he's talking about living 2,000 years. Wow, you'll still be alive. No. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being killed before the tribulation even starts as they go on their mission trip that he's sending them on. That they'll be betrayed by family. People turn against you. Happens to happen to Christians for years and years. And the one that endures the end will be saved. But 
If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. Don't fear man who can kill your body, but fear God who can destroy body and soul in hell. Very, very clear. So we're speaking here of future salvation. And the enemy would love you to believe that you do not have to endure to the end. That you do not have to persevere in your faith. You know, he'd like you to be like the hare. Oh, I got it made. Instead of the turtle, who just kept going on. The Christian life is not a sprint, amen? It's not a dash up to the altar call. As this man says, just receive Christ, you know, and you can quit church and you can, you know, be a murderer and you'll go right to heaven. It's not a sprint, 100-yard dash up to the altar call. It's a marathon to the end of your life because the Bible speaks of past salvation By grace, we have been what? Saved. Past tense. Through faith. That not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works as anyone should boast. Okay? We presently, I should say, have salvation. We have been saved in the past. And there are various uh, scriptures that speak to that end. Uh, I think that's important that we appreciate that. But that's something we talk about all the time. You know that we have been saved and praise God that we have been saved. Have you been saved? Have you trusted Jesus? You've been saved. But uh, <laughs> the scriptures talk about far more than past salvation. Now it's interesting. I think this is kind of interesting because not only is the church woefully lacking uh, in their understanding of salvation, but I had a several years ago, several years ago, I don't know how long ago, but there was an older gentleman, and uh, he came to me, and he, which kind of surprised me, he was talking about how salvation is future in the New Testament. I go, yeah, I agree, 100%. But it never speaks of salvation as being in our past. It never speaks of having been saved. He was the other extreme, and... That, and, 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 you know, by the way, Ephesians 2, 5, 2, 8, these are scriptures that speak, and I gave him a couple of these, that speak of salvation as having taken place in our past. We've been saved if you're trusting Jesus. If you're trusting Jesus right now, you're saved. You've been saved. If you're, if you're trusting him right now, amen. Uh, also, Titus 3, 5. Also, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Also, Romans chapter 8, verse 24. I gave him a few of these, and he had nothing to say. But I thought it was interesting by him not thinking or appreciating that those who are trusting Jesus have been saved, it could skew the whole way he looks at salvation. But the same is true for those who think, yes, I know I've been saved, but they don't understand future salvation. It's just because it's out of balance. And most of the church is out of balance today. It's just a, rea- it's a, it's a, it's a radical reality. Now, it's interesting to me as well because the scriptures also speak. In fact, I told this gentleman, I said, I did a, a three-part series in the past on how our salvation is past, present, and future. That's why I could go to verses pretty quick with him on the subject matter because I've studied it. I go, I've emphasized, and, and he'd been in the fellowship for a little bit at the time. I go, you know I emphasize future salvation. You've heard me preach on it, you know. 
but, uh, but he had, took umbrage with the fact that I preached that we've been saved too. I love it when you get attacked from two different angles. That means you're preaching the whole counsel of God often, you know. But, you know, the scriptures also speak, the word for saved is sozo. Sozo. Kind of, I like that word. It's kind of like life, you know. The word for life is zoe, right? Bio is physical life. Usually zoe is often in the scripture. Spiritual life. Uh, but the scripture uses the word uh, sozomenoi. Sozomenoi is the word for those of us who are in the class of being saved. So if you're trusting Jesus right now, you have been saved, but you are being saved as well. There's also a present aspect to salvation. So it's interesting. The scriptures speak of being saved as, and in theology we say now, but not yet. What? Yeah, we're saved, but not yet having obtained our final salvation. So there's that tension. And that tension is, kind of blows me away. Throughout the New Testament, is used of many of the metaphors of salvation. Past, but also speaks of the present aspect of not just the word saved, but other, other terms. It's kind of, kind of, to me, it's heavy. I love, I love this stuff because it shows me how the Lord is just doing a radical work. The Apostle Paul, and you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 if you want. Verses, verse 2, he's talking about the gospel. And he says, Now I make known to you the gospel which, that I proclaim to you, which also you receive, in which also you stand, which you are also, now check it out, by which you are also being saved. Okay? I'm quoting the, uh, the English Standard Version here because it brings out the present tense. The English Standard Version uh, brings that out. I'm, I'm, uh, well, I should say, I know I'm quoting another version, but the English Standard Version also brings out, does a good job bringing out the present tense. That's a popular translation. That's why I put that in my notes. It says, by which you are being saved if you hold fast the word I preached. You are being saved, English Standard Version, if you hold fast the word which is which preached. So it's conditional too. Salvation is conditional. When you share the gospel with someone, do you tell them it's unconditional? Hopefully God just zaps you. Or do you tell them they must repent and put their trust in Jesus? You let them know there's a condition, right? He died for you, but you have to put your faith in the Lord. Amen? Amen. So you sure, you need to do that. You're responsible. If you don't, Jesus says people are condemned already because they don't believe in the only begotten Son of God. John chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus said that. Condemnation isn't because God wants to condemn people. It's because people reject the Son. John 3, 18. So salvation is conditional. By grace we're saved through faith. What's the condition of salvation? By grace you're saved through what? Faith. Guess what? The condition never goes away. We're still saved by grace through faith. And that's why Paul says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel that I proclaim to you, by which also, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are being saved. By which you are also being saved. Because in the Greek it's a present tense. Not past or future. If you hold fast, and he goes, if you hold fast, this is the NSB as well, if you hold fast, the, the word proclaimed to you, the English Standard Version says, preached to you, this version proclaimed to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. In other words, to no ultimate purpose. Paul talked about his preaching sometimes. If they didn't continue the faith, he said, my preaching would be in vain. 
Didn't mean his preaching wasn't sincere and good and right, but it means it didn't have an ultimate effect in the lives of those he preached to. Same exact word, by the way. Biblical scholar Robert, Robert Piccarelli, we just interviewed him on our Good Fight radio show uh, recently. In fact, I think he was on last week or the week before. Great brother to talk to. Older gentleman, I think he's in his almost mid-80s. A sweetheart of a man in Jesus. He wrote in his commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Corinthians are being saved by means of the gospel and can confidently expect final salvation if in fact they go on holding fast to such good news as Paul announced to them. Paul is confident that they are holding fast to the gospel. Even so, he feels it necessary to attach an exception clause. They are holding fast except for the possibility that if they are not, they placed, if, if they if they are not, they place their original faith in Christ in vain. He says their faith, but he's talking about the original faith. The reference to being, to believing in vain reflects the real possibility of apostasy from the faith. See, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's concerned that they're going to deny the resurrection of Christ. That's a big part of 1 Corinthians 15. That some of them there are, in fact, possibly uh, still denying that Jesus died for their sins. Paul speaks of being saved in 2 Corinthians 2.15, those who are being saved. Again, it's in the present tense. In Philippians 2.12 and 13, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He didn't say work for your salvation, as some people misread it. We don't work for your salvation. We're saved by God's grace, grace through faith. It's a gift, but we have to trust him. But work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you to do his good will and purpose. The author of the book of Hebrews also was concerned about future salvation. In fact, go ahead and to go, go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, I mean, is just like, huh, such an amazing book. But he's concerned about their future salvation over and over again. He speaks of it. And I'm used, now, at this point, I'm dealing with a lot of verses that use the word saved in them. Because I want to show you that the word saved often is speaking of our future salvation. Hebrews 2 Verse 1, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Talking about the gospel. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a what? Salvation. After it was first spoken through the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by the gifts of of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He's talking about himself. If we must pay, us, he's got to be careful too. Okay, go to Hebrews chapter 10. 26. If we go on sinning willfully, that means you just say, hey, I'm gonna, I don't care about following Jesus anymore. I'm going to just live my own life. It doesn't mean you just fall short of God's glory and you ask for forgiveness and get right with God. But if you just live a life of rebellion and you basically turn your back on Jesus, the context of Hebrews 10 because it talks about uh, insulting the spirit of grace, trampling underfoot the, underfoot the Son of God, despising the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified. He's warning saved people, obviously. What does he say? For if we go on sitting willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There no longer what? Remains a what? Sacrifice for sins. In other words, there was sacrifice for sins, but if you turn your back on Jesus, you won't continue to be cleansed. 
What's going to happen? Look at verse 27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Go to Hebrews 10, verse 36. A few verses later. For you have need of what? You have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what? What was promised? Not the tribulation period. <laughs> right? Salvation. Amen. Verse 20, 37. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Now look at verse 38. But my righteous one shall what? Live by faith. The King James, if you have the King James, the just, those who are justified. Those who have been justified by the blood of Christ. Those who have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But look at verse 39. But we are not of those who what? Shrink back to destruction. But of those who what? Have faith to what? The saving of the soul. The King James has, or the NASB has the preservative of the soul. Same meaning, the saving of the soul. So here, there are those who do shrink back to destruction. These guys, if you back up a few verses, verses 32 through 35, he talks about how they endured a great amount of persecutions, afflictions. Some of them were visiting people in prison. Some of them lost their homes for the faith. So he's confident that they're going to make it, but he's still concerned because there's those who, if my righteous one, what? shrinks back. That's not talking about a lost person. It's about someone becoming lost after having been declared righteous. My soul will have no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back, meaning there are those who shrink back to destruction. But of them that believe unto the saving of the soul, we must continue to believe. Now, the saving of the soul, he's talking about past salvation or what? Or future. Future salvation. You get it? It says future salvation over and over and over again in the scripture. Listen to Romans chapter 13, verse 11. And Paul perhaps uh, has the ten virgins in mind, that story. We don't know for sure, but uh, he definitely used a lot of Jesus' teachings. Uh, and he says in Romans 13, 11, Do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Wake up. For now, listen to this, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. What? Is that past salvation or future? Future. Salvation is nearer to us than we, when we believed. As a Christian, you need to lock into the Word of God. God forbid you should hear this whole message and then leave here and a week later not even understand that there's future salvation and that that should impact your life. In fact, it should impact your life morally because he goes on to say, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on, their, um, and put on the armor of light let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness. In other words, hey, somebody invites you to go to a party and get drunk or to a party and it's a bunch of people just doing wicked things. Unless you're going to be a light and go witness, there's probably not going to be a lot of good that comes out of that. And you get, start getting drunk, then you're not putting on the armor of light. You're in the cover of darkness. You're asleep spiritually. And he's warning you in light of our salvation, our final salvation, being closer to us than when we first believed. And what is it with Christians that think that there's, that it blows me away, a lot of professing Christians 
think that in certain areas that they somehow have a license to be different. As though they could go to Vegas and just become, and do evil. Or they could go to a wedding. They'd be totally against getting drunk. It's unbiblical. But after all, I'm at a wedding now. I can get drunk now because I think that's okay with Jesus because he turned water into wine. If you go to a wedding, don't get drunk, okay? Because you're sinning against the Lord. You're breaking his heart. He died for you. You're being a bad witness to people, okay? I'm just encouraging you because I've seen it happen. People that I would never expect are just like, I'm like, what in the world happened to this? Because they don't even know what's happening. They see other people drinking, they start drinking. And all of a sudden, before you know it, they're drunk and they don't even know it. And they start saying stupid things. You're like, this is Frank? I remember one brother, I chasing him right there because he sat at my table. I said, bro, you ought not be drinking like that, man. You're getting drunk, dude. And he's like, he didn't want to talk to me about it. I was ruining his buzz, I guess, right? I'm like, you're supposed to be a Christian, you know. He, was, he got better, you know. As soon as he started driving away, I called the police on him for drunk driving. No, I'm teasing about that. But Anyway, I'm just trying to encourage you guys, man. He says, uh, let us behave properly in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Okay, he doesn't want you to be involved in sexual sin. That, he takes it seriously. If your right hand causes you sin, he says, cut it off. It's better to go to heaven maimed than go to hell with your whole body. Wow. Your right eye causes you sin, poke it out. Better to go to heaven blind Right? Is he talking about literally? No, because no, you wouldn't really be blind, right? You'd see out of the other eye. And poking out an eye wouldn't stop you from lusting. It's really a heart condition. But what is Jesus saying there? Do something radical to deal with your sin. Amen? Be radical. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to his lust. Wow. And similar echoes of Jesus' warnings about him coming like a thief in the night. We see Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 talk about how Jesus is coming like a thief. And then he talks about future salvation again. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 9. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. A lot of people think, Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. Not for the believer he isn't, because we have the signs of the times. And Paul says we're not in darkness that that day would overtake us like a thief. For you are all sons of the light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Remember the ten virgins? They all fell asleep. They woke up, but five were not prepared. Their oil ran out. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk get drunk at night. He's not saying don't physically sleep. Don't misunderstand that. Okay? You go to bed at night, oh no, I can't fall asleep. You know, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not spiritual sleep. But since we are of the day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And listen to this. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. When Paul talks about hope in Romans 8, he says, a hope that's already attained is no longer hope. Hope of salvation speaks of future salvation. Titus, by the way, Paul speaks of the hope of salvation twice in Titus. And then listen to what he says. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he talking about past salvation or future salvation? Future salvation again. 
We have the hope of salvation, and God's not appointed us to wrath. We're not appointed to God's wrath and judgment. Amen? Because we're, we're appointed to obtain salvation. And we look forward to it. Amen? God is good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, Paul talks about ministers who have not, have, they've kind of done a shoddy job with, as far as their works and serving the Lord. But if they're sincere Christians, they'll still be saved in the end. But I want to ask you a question. When they're judged, and some of their works will be burned up with fire. Others will stand when you go before the judgment seat of Christ. But is he talking about present or future or past salvation here? Listen to this. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through what? Fire. Huh. What kind of salvation is he talking about? Future salvation. The judgment at the great, you know, and he's talking about the day of the Lord there, the day we're revealed, he says in verse, I think, 12 or 13 there. But in verse 15, he talks about how the works will be burned up, but his soul will be saved. Talking about future salvation. I'm telling you right now, the word saved is far more in the, in the context in the future tense than the past tense. But we almost always speak of salvation in the past tense. And that's because we're not biblically balanced and we don't have a first century Christian mindset. And it kind of bugs me. It really saddens me. Jesus says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or I said St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, there's a guy, remember that guy that's having sexual relations with his father's wife? And he says to, I'm, I've already, you know, had him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of salvation, or in the day of the Lord. That's future tense. And the idea is there, not that he's going to kill him so he go to heaven, as some... Uh, those who turn grace into license teach, because in chapter 6 he says, don't be deceived, fornicators, adulterers, so forth, won't inherit God's kingdom. He's not saying that, but so he'll repent. Go to 2 Corinthians 2, you see the guy repented and came back. What's going on here, guys? It's important to understand. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved or might be saved in the day of salvation. Oh, I'm sorry, the day of the Lord. But saved is in the what tense? Future tense Again. Wow. Now, it's interesting. Paul says, pay close attention to your, yourself and your teaching. He's talking to Timothy. Persevere in these things. And for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. Again, he's talking about future salvation. And he says that in verse 16. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says to Timothy that the Holy Spirit speaks explicitly that in the last time some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. So he tells him to watch your life, your behavior, and your doctrine, and so doing, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. He's talking about, again, future salvation. You know, I think it's interesting... Uh, This, uh, I love this uh, commentator, B.J. Orpeza. B.J. Orpeza says uh, regarding these verses, and this is in his book, which I have. It's a great book, Jews, Gentiles, and the Opponents of Paul. He says, quote, The ones who apostatize are not fake believers, but real Christians. The nature of their apostasy involves devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and demonic teachings. These teachings are no doubt promulgated promulgated by false teachers, for chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, 
satanic spiritual forces are viewed as being the inspiration of these false teachers. And these powers are mentioned as a way to vilify the teachers. And, and he says a little further down, in the pastoral epistles or letters, then final salvation, final salvation is futuristic with the real potential to have one's faith undermined, making it all the more important for these Christians to take seriously the need to endure through potential deception. So I, I love that commentary because he has the guts enough to say it. Paul's concerned about our future salvation. In 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 2.15, it says, But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in, the, in faith, love, and holiness, and propriety. They'll be saved, future tense, through childbearing. Some, some wrongly teach that you have to have a baby if you're a woman to be saved. That's not what he's talking about. But a few chapters later, he talks about women who become widows and, and they go, if you put them on the church welfare list, they'll wax wanton against Christ. They'll deny their first faith. They'll go aside after Satan, becoming busybodies. And, and he's talking about saving them from getting involved in the ills of this life. And if they're chasing, you know, if Eve would have had Cain and Abel first and she was chasing them around, she might not have been talking to the serpent, right? So it's all, of, all important for all of us, male and female, to be busy with the things that the Lord has called us to. Amen. And you could have the gift of singleness, but the idea is making sure you're devoted first and foremost to Jesus. And those verses are in 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 15. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2. You can go there if you want. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. And, and by the way, 1 and 2 Timothy, the book of Hebrews, 1 and 2 Peter, these whole books emphasize future salvation over and over again. In 2 Timothy 2, 10 through 13, he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Paul endures everything. He's talking about going through some really heavy trials, being chained, imprisoned. And I endure these things for the sake of the elect. Now Paul, according to I. Howard Marshall, one of my favorite uh, scholars, he's been dead for a few years now, uh, he mentions that the term elect is, and, and I, I found this to be true, is when it's talking about salvation and used of believers, it's only ever used of those who are Christians. Okay. It's not used of imaginary people, even though God knows who will come to him and who will not. In 2 Timothy 2, 10 through 13, therefore, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may what? Obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Talking about future salvation. He endures because he wants the elect to obtain a future salvation. I have heart, Paul's heartbeat, man. Hopefully you do too. I'm I am, he's concerned about their future salvation. He constantly warns the church. And he goes on to say it's a faithful saying, you know, that if we've died with him, we will reign with him. That if we deny him, he will deny us. Why is he born like that? Because he wants them to obtain their final salvation. That's why. And if we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And if we deny him and we're faithless in denying him, He's faithful to deny us. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He has to keep his, his promises and the warnings. Now, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord shall free me from every evil work and shall save me to his heavenly kingdom. I love that. 2 Timothy 4.18. Save me for his eternal kingdom. Future salvation again. He says that because a few verses later, in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Amen? Amen. The author of Hebrews says, in chapter 9, verse 27 and 28, 
That's the point of man wants to die, but after this, a judgment. And you know what he says after that? For Christ appeared the first time in reference to our sin, but who returned a second time in reference to our salvation. Future again. All over the place. It just blows me away. I can find four or five verses that talk about salvation, use the word saved in the past tense. But, and I'll be done in a minute. That's because we have so many verses that say, talk about future salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and through 9, speaks of those who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls, verse 9. Salvation revealed last times. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Future tense, future tense. 1 Peter 5, 1, 5, and 1, 9. James chapter 1, verse 22. Therefore, put inside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility. Receive the word implanted. He's talking to brothers, by the way, which is able to save your souls. Future tense. Well, what if someone's received the word? Then they go astray. Brethren, if any of you turn from the faith and one converts it back, the very last two verses of James, which many scholars believe are the main verses in the book of James because they believe he's summing up his message. Brethren, if any of you turn away from the faith or the truth, remember the truth? Receive the engrafted word, the truth. It's able to save your souls. James 1.21, James 5.19.20 now. Brethren, if any of you turn away from the truth and one converts him back, He'll save a soul, he'll save a soul, he'll save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Future salvation, again. So, it's just imperative that you and I understand that there's three aspects of salvation. We've been saved, we're being saved, and we shall be saved. Are there conditions of salvation, yes or no? Yeah. Do we just go up to people and say, I hope God saves you someday? No, we say, you've got to put your trust in Jesus, amen? amen? If you tell somebody that they must put their trust in Jesus to be saved, are you teaching a works-based gospel, yes or no? No. Then why, if you tell somebody they must continue to put their trust in Jesus, would that in any way be a works-based gospel? That would just be the, the pleading of the devil, trying to get you not to preach the truth that they need to persevere in their faith to obtain final salvation. So brothers and sisters, when we talk about salvation, let's remember there's three aspects. Amen? And you know what I didn't have time for today? Didn't have time for it. There's all these beautiful, radical metaphors that are used for salvation, past and future. And I've been working on it off and on for years, actually, but a lot of time today because I was specifically focused on it. And I couldn't get to those. And I scrapped them. I didn't bring them with me. I had like 11 pages of notes only, and I had like way more. Aren't you glad? Because <laughs> I think we have had enough. But if somebody comes up to you and say, hey, somebody said that there is a future aspect of salvation. Is that true? Do you have the right answer? Can you go to any scriptures? Some, I want to have a few people just quickly. Just, you don't have to quote it right, but just reference one of the scriptures I reference for future salvation. Anyone you want. What's that? Ooh, Hebrews 10, yeah. Especially 38 and 39, right? That's right, that's really good. 10, 38, 39, 10, 26 through 29, because you mentioned 29 uh, as well. Amen. We, we persevere unto the saving of our souls, right? Anybody else? Come on, 
please. What's that? Amen. Exact quote right there. But that only has to do with the tribulation period, don't you see? And that means you'll live at the end if you endure the tribulation period. Matthew 10. Ah, praise the Lord, Nick. Because Wendy, I don't know if you, because you guys came in a few minutes after we started, but I was showing how they try to get around that. But in Matthew 10, it says the same thing when it's not talking about the tribulation period even. Oh, by the way, let me say this. When it says that in Matthew chapter 24, it's the second time Jesus said he enters and we saved. It's in the context too of spiritual deception. Many will be deceived. Uh, many will fall away. Amen. The love of many will grow cold, right? He that endures the end will be saved. It has a spiritual application. It's not talking about your physical life in that context either. One more. Those are good ones, guys. Praise the Lord. I'm going to call on somebody. No, you can't keep going. One more, though, from you. You're billing people out. Second Corinthians, amen, I'm teasing you. <laughs> I'm going to call my wife, so. It's a teasing, baby. Anybody one more, maybe? And if you wrote it down, you can look and cheat. God gives us open book tests. Isn't that great? It's not cheating. He's great. We get the wrong. What's that? Salvation is the Trinity. Yep, there's three aspects. That's good, Jimmy. It's really neat. One more verse. Gerald. Amen. That's future, right, Gerald? Praise the Lord. Amen. We did it. All right. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you.